Let's take our Bibles and go to the Old Testament book of Ezra. Ezra, where we're going to pick up in chapter 9. Have to wait for all the kids to leave before I tell this next story. Because uh, it involves myself and my youth when I was probably about that age as well. Uh, my brother and I would frequently come home on Sundays. We would have an opportunity where we would just wrestle after church. And uh, it was so much fun. We have a lot of great memories. There's one in particular, though, that uh, not so good. Uh, my brother and I were just in this big match. And all of a sudden, I looked up. And there in front of my face, I've had him in a hold such that it's just, it's his, it's his gluteus maximus sitting right there. And as I looked at this, I just surrendered all wisdom and surrendered all good judgment and decided to just bite him as hard as I could. And so, of course, he screamed. That brought my dad in. And uh, with my dad entering in, he kind of looks at me and he goes, what in the world happened? And my brother looks up screaming and he says, he bit me. And, you know, pulls down his pants to show it. It's like a Doberman got a hold of him. And my dad looks at me, he's kind of like, what? And I said, no, no, he fell on my teeth. <laughs> you know, my dad responded the same way y'all just did. And um, I really did think he was going to believe me. I had no intention of telling the truth, and I'll tell you why. First of all, I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed at what I had done. I was embarrassed at where I bit him. And I was also concerned about the trouble that that would bring. But I learned that day that guilt and shame that is left unaddressed will trap you in unrighteousness. And um, Well, we're in the book of Ezra, in chapter 9 in particular. And uh, this has to do with uh, the heart of a people. And will they acknowledge their sin? What will they do when God brings it to bear on them? And so we're dealing with 60 years after Ezra, or excuse me, after the exiles have returned out of, uh, from the land of the north, and they've come down south, and they have established 50,000 people have been established throughout the kingdom. They've gotten the temple built, and there was a lot of issues, but they eventually completed that project. And, uh, but you have to come back and say, now, wait a minute, time out. Let's remember, why did God put these people in exile to begin with? At the end of the day, it was idolatry. They surrendered the worship of the one true God for the worship of idols. And so as a result, God put them in a means of discipline. He says, you like idols? I'll let you go to the land of idols. And so he sent them away. And so it was meant to teach them a lesson, that they were to maintain a purity in the worship of God, to, to worship him and him alone with no compromise. Well, again, after the temple has been reconstructed, we've got it several years, several decades have gone by. Now, Ezra comes, instead of 50,000, he's come with 1,500 people. And uh, as he returns to the land and he gets somewhat established, he makes a discovery. Things are not good. There is a big problem going on here. That's what we're going to look at. Follow along with me. I'm not going to read the whole text like we normally do, just due to time's sake. Follow along with me as we go through a few verses at a time and just talk about them. Verse 1, it says, now, when these things had been completed, these things being the return of the exiles, getting resettled, taking the items that God had given them and instilling them into worship. Well, after these things, the princes approached me, Ezra, saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands, according to their abominations. Those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, 
the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. Now, what is the big problem that Ezra has discovered here? The people are living in sin. He's not addressing just some sort of momentary lapse in judgment. This is a sin that the culture as a whole is embracing. It began with the leaders, and as are the leaders, so often go the people. And you see this just begin to happen throughout the community. And nobody is speaking out about it. Ezra is going to address this and show the pathway to a restored fellowship with God when sin is present within the community. Verses 1 and 2 highlight that sin. They brought attention to it. Um, it's easy to kind of read through those verses somewhat fast and sort of gloss over some of the things that you see there. But if you focus on just a few of the key words that are in those verses, you kind of get a sense of the gravity and the severity of the offense and what exactly has happened here. In verse 1, again, it says that the leaders of the people haven't separated from the people of the lands. And here's a word you can underline, and their abominations. Interesting word use there. He doesn't say, and their infractions. He doesn't say, and their, and their problems. He says, their abominations. Meaning, don't see this as light. See this in the horror that it presents. And the awfulness and the gratitude, the ingratitude, the disgust that is here. It's a strong word and it's meant to be a strong word. The horror was not, by the way, necessarily that they intermarried with people of a different race. We have Old Testament examples of people who did that and they were not condemned. Remember a guy named, oh, I don't know, Moses married a woman, Zipporah, who was a Midianite. You remember a guy named Boaz who married, you remember, a Moabite, Ruth. The issue was not their race. The issue was often the people of that race brought in the worship of the idols in their culture. This isn't about intermarrying or interracial marriages. This is about uh, assimilation into false religions. That's the problem and the issue. And God had given them a warning about this. Both in the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy, God had spelled this out very clearly to give them the warning and the prohibition. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God said, furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them, meaning the, the culture, the people of the culture of the land. And you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For, and here's the reason, they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. Now, they not only had this warning, they had a pretty significant historical lesson they could look back on as well. Y'all remember the wisest man that ever lived, Solomon? What brought Solomon into heresy? It's exactly this issue. First, Corinthians, or First Kings 11 says of Solomon, he had 700 wives, princes, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Now notice this. The word of God was given to let the people know what the will of God was. And the will of God is not arbitrary and random. When God makes a command, there's a purpose behind it. 
even if you don't understand it, you don't get it. God has his purposes. And ultimately, it's always in line with his holiness and his being and his character, and thus your well-being, your character, and your walk with him. And to begin to intermarry with people of different faiths was a recipe for disaster. Now, just a quick side note, the New Testament addresses that specific issue as well. It comes to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 where it says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Some of your translations, instead of saying being bound together, say don't be unequally yoked. The idea being if you had these, um, if you've got a yoke, you have these two beasts underneath it. And they're meant to be about equal strength. Well, if you put a big old ox on one side and a mule on the other, it's always going to veer in the direction of the one that's stronger. And it's a perfect analogy of what the Spirit or what the, the Word of God is telling us regarding what happens when we take in our relationships and we bind ourselves together with someone who doesn't hold to the same faith. We go into marriage that way. The scriptures are very clear. You're going to turn. It's going to be a problem. And so the issue that Ezra makes here is, look, we have done this, and it is not good. And on top of that, you're making excuses for it. Well, the leaders do it. These other people do it. How, how bad can this be? You know, I've shared with you before an illustration that a friend of mine did when her kids went through this same sort of thing. They were just saying, well, it isn't that bad. I mean, you know, it's... It, it, Come on, you know, God can make this all work. So she came up with this brilliant idea, make them a batch of brownies. Got them out, served them warm. Everyone gathered around, ready to eat these brownies together. She said, hey, just want to let you know, I've used all natural ingredients. Great, smells awesome. She says, but you also need to know this. I put one teaspoon of dog manure in the batter, but it's just a little bit. It won't make that much difference. What did they say? Horror and abomination. No, we will have nothing to do with that because it has gotten in and it has tainted the entirety of what it is that we want to consume. So as a result, um, Ezra is doing the same thing with the people. He's calling them out. And he's saying, you say it's no big deal? It is a big deal. It is an abomination. It's a defiance to God's clear direction to you. And it's going to lead to the abandonment of the worship of God. So by intermarrying with these other people, it's going to be an act, here's what it is, it's going to be an act of unfaithfulness with God. Do we see unfaithfulness between marriage partners as a big deal? Everybody better say, yeah. Your spouse will have something to say to you about that. <laughs> yeah, we do. And God does too. And the relationship that we have with him. And Ezra's going to call them out. I've been reading this fascinating book on um, spies during the Cold War, and I came to realize that Britain had someone who had infiltrated their system, a fellow named Kim Philby. Kim got into the highest echelons of the British intelligence service, and he was, a, he was a spy for the Soviets, and he was protecting all these other Soviets that were within the system, and England had no idea for decades. Now, imagine, if you will, that you had been amongst the intel community, and you found this out. Uh, I think there's a pretty good chance you would out this fellow. 
you would let somebody know. You would say, this isn't right. This has to be changed. This is going to infect the entirety of our country and our security. That's exactly what Ezra is doing with his people here. He's calling them out. Now, the word of God, that is ultimately what constrains us. Amen? Hopefully, we've got a conscience, too. But let's acknowledge something. Our conscience alone, can be, it is fallen, and it can think wrong thoughts, and it's bent, and it can even be seared. And if these people's conscience was working, then it was at a minimum seared because the clearly revealed word of God was in contrast with how they were living and what they were choosing to do. And so Ezra said, no, we cannot stay this way. And he called it out. He called attention to it. Well, that moved him to the next step. And that's in verses three through four, where then we move into conviction. Verse 3, he says, when I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe, and I pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard, and I sat down appalled. These were signs in that day and that culture of deep grief and remorse. Verse 4, then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. So he knew what was being done. And he knew it wasn't right, and it was bad, and it was sin, and it grieved him. And his grief actually impacted and affected other people. As they saw this, all of a sudden, it began to mess with their conscience and mess with their souls. And the abhorrence of this sin now brought a conviction to others. And you see it again in verse 4 where they got scared. They trembled. You know, when I was in college, um, I was coming home for the holidays one season, and uh, I was trying to get around this vehicle, and it's this up and down hilly section. And so finally, I saw my chance to get around them. But for some reason, the person decided to speed up. By the time I did get around them, I, had not, I was not only speeding really fast, but I was now in a no-crossing uh, zone. And a highway patrolman caught me, pulled me over, gave me two tickets in one sitting. So I get home, and I call, and I say, okay, how do I call my insurance agent and said, how do I deal with this? And he said, Pay the fine for the no crossing zone or disregarding the no passing zone. He says, but take defensive driving for the speeding because then you can actually lower your insurance rate. Got it. Wrote the check for the one, but I'm a college student and I totally forgot to go get defensive driving. Outed myself, talked to the justice of the peace of the county. He said, oh, it's been a while. Don't even worry about it. Yes, great. Until the day I had to go renew my driver's license. And I walk into the DMV, and so they're so polite, and the woman behind the counter is just dealing with me. And oh, it's great, blah, 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 fill this, fill this. Before we continue, Officer Boyle, uh, I think you need to speak with Mr. Gill. Oh, sure. So I go back, and he says, would you come with me, Mr. Gill? Certainly. And we go back into his little office, and he goes, just want to let you know, we have a warrant out for your arrest. And I knew exactly what had happened. I interrupted him. I said, you know what? I know what this is about. And I explained it. You know, I called. I forgot. I was guilty of that. I forgot. I, you know, what do I need to do? And he says, well, you have one of two choices. You can go to jail or you can pay, you know, what you owe on this ticket. I said, okay. Pulled out my checkbook and took care of it right there. But it was a conviction that came on me instantly. The attention came to then bring on a clear-cut case of conviction. Ezra is their officer pulling them in the back room saying, God has a warrant for your arrest. And the people had forgotten their offense, just forgotten it. 
their unfaithfulness is synonymous, again, with disloyalty, with fraud against God. And you can see the gravity behind what this issue is. What do you do when your sin has been made known to you? Attention has been drawn to it, and now conviction has come on you. For Ezra, it moves him to what we see in verses 5 through 15. It moves him to a prayer of confession, realizing sin's impact. I mean, initially, that's what got them into exile to begin with was idolatry. Now they're going right back into it through this intermarriage with people who worship different gods. You see the response in verse 5. But at the evening offering, I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees. And I stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, oh my God, and if you have a pen, you need to underline this. I am ashamed and embarrassed. I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. That's what sin brings, shame, embarrassment. Now, when I, when I use the word guilt, all right, a lot of times people hear that, and I don't want you to interpret that wrongly. When I use the term guilt here, that's an objective term. What I mean by that is you're morally culpable for something you did wrong. It's objective. It has nothing to do with how you feel. If you do 80 and a 30, you broke the law. There is guilt that you have and you possess. But how often when guilt is made aware to us, then follows this idea of shame. Shame is how I feel about the perception that others have of me based on my guilt. What do people think about me based on what I did? So again, guilt is oriented around what it is that I have done. But shame, shame deals with who I am based on what I've done. And quite often, it's that shame that drives us towards isolation. It's too embarrassing. We don't want to be around people. We don't want this to continue to come to the surface. We just want to hide it. Well, this is, an, this is a big deal. This is a big part of where Ezra has to go with the people. By the way, it's where we have to go with our sin as well. I was watching the movie The Blind recently with some friends. And uh, that's the, basically it's the testimony of Phil Robertson. And if some of you might remember him from Duck Dynasty, guy with the long beard. And uh, after he goes through, it's pretty tastefully done, you know, talking about his past without going graphically in depth. But at the end of the movie, it's very interesting. He sits down and he looks at the camera and he purposes to share the gospel. And when he looks at the camera, he says, what you have seen is what sin does to a life. And then he goes on and he says, it is embarrassing and it is humiliating. And I thought, yeah, my goodness, that you would let that be known about you. There is an embarrassment and humiliation that comes with that. And all of us have this. You got things you are going to make sure nobody knows about to the best of your ability. You do not want that known. Can I highlight something to you? God draws it out. In his mercy, it's ideal when he lets you know, he brings it to just your attention so that it works in your heart for conviction so that then you might confess that. But I'll make you a promise. If you're a child of God and you won't deal with that, God will out you. And he'll out me. It's one of, my, it's one of the things that helps me in thinking about just in my own role, you know, okay? 
if I don't deal with my sin, God's going to out me. I'd rather deal with it at this level rather than at this level. And it's the same with all of us. So when God brings this, what are we meant to do with it? Take the conviction to then move like Ezra to confession. Now, some of you may look and go, but wait a minute, Jack, Ezra didn't do any of this. These were the people that he came into, the the company of folks that were already there. Well, he does assume the guilt of his people. And that's hard for us in a very independent American society to think of. You know, we kind of think, well, a lot of the uh, Eastern cultures, the very shame-based culture, well, they will do that, but, but we don't really do that. Can I challenge that? Uh, I saw not too long ago an interview of some of the family members of one of the people who was a shooter and killed a number of people. And when they interviewed the parents or the brothers and the sisters, there's huge shame. But they didn't do anything. But we were affiliated with them. And that's where Ezra is. Yeah, I may not have committed it, but I'm affiliated with this. So he assumes the guilt and the shame of the people that has been committed against a holy God. But he knows something, something wonderful about God. That while God is very just and God is holy and God is pure, he also knows that God can be merciful and God can be gracious. And he appeals to that. That's verse 7. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we've been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, and to plunder, and to open shame as it is this day. But now, for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in the holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. For we are slaves, yet in our bondage our God has not forsaken us, but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. So again, he's remembering, we committed these sins before, and God disciplined us, but then God in his mercy and grace has brought us back. When he says he's given us this this peg, you know, you think of it as like a a peg is that which would contain a, a tent and lock it into a position. And he says, when we have the tabernacle now reestablished, it's like God's peg to say, I've got you established here. You're going to remain. But in that remaining, they realize God still wanted a relationship with them. But at the same time, they're, they're risking some serious stuff. Because if God uprooted them once before, would he do that again? But they took comfort in the fact that they know, but God does want that relationship with us. Verse 10, he specifically states what the sin was. Now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying that the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations, which they filled from end to end with their impurity. So now do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or their prosperity that you may be strong. And eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you, our God, have requited us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us an escaped remnant as this, shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations? 
Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant nor any who escape? Again, he's gone back and says, look, here's the problem with his intermarriage. It puts us at risk of violating commandments one and two. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make idols for yourselves. No graven image. They're on a path to um, bringing in a syncretism and assimilating with false doctrine, and it always produces idolatry. In verses 11 and 12, if you have a Bible that has cross-references in there, you'll see Exodus and Deuteronomy in the cross-references. Because, you know, it's not like Ezra had the Bible that we have that has it divided into chapters and verses. He just quotes the verses and puts them right down here for everyone to see. But then he closes with verse 15, very significant. O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we have been left an escaped remnant. As it is this day, behold, we are before you in our guilt, and no one can stand before you because of this. Why is that significant? It's an admission of guilt. We are guilty. He does not say they fell on our teeth. He says we are guilty. We violated your word where you said don't do this, and it has set us on a bad path. All we have to appeal to at this point is your mercy and your grace. That's all we can do. Now, folks, this is Old Testament. What about, what about in the New Testament? All the principles that are here are simply followed up with in the New Testament as well. The New Testament tells us in John chapter 16 that the Holy Spirit has come to convict the world regarding sin. And he will convict believers regarding their sins as well. And he can take our conscience and he can take our guilt and use that. But again, even as believers, can our conscience be seared? Yeah. It can. We, can. we can numb it down, dumb it down. And so the, the Holy Spirit will bring this conviction upon us through his word and thus impact our hearts. And then with our attention on sin, the conviction that what we did was wrong, and that conviction is meant to move us to then confess what it is that we've done wrong. Note that. Because a lot of times I think Christians get, mis- get confused about this. God doesn't go, you know what, don't worry about that. I'll sweep it under the carpet. We'll just pretend that didn't happen. It always has to be dealt with, and he does deal with it, and it has been addressed. So he gives attention and conviction so we can move to confession. When I was in seminary, uh, I had to go to these chapel services all the time, and uh, don't remember hardly any of them, but about three. Uh, The one I'm going to relay to you is the one that has stuck out in my mind the most, and it was a sermon called How to Apologize. And it was based on human relationships. But everything that I saw in this how to apologize, the the standard for it comes from how we do this with God in confession. And the speaker said, when apologizing first, you never say, I'm sorry if I offended you. You never say if. By the way, I'm telling you this, don't go the next time somebody offends you and say, no, you didn't follow the rules on how to apologize. (laughs) This is only for you right now. Don't, but you don't go and say, I'm sorry if. I caused any harm or if I offended you. I'm sorry if you fell on my teeth. There's no repentance in that. He said, you change it. You say, I'm sorry that I, and then you name what it is you did. I'm sorry that I spoke rudely to you. It was disrespectful. I'm sorry that I imputed wrong motives to you. It was taking a a jump, a leap that I have no reason to. It was assuming that I knew your heart. I'm sorry that I bit your gluteus maximus. You then go on to say, I see what it means, though. 
understand what this has done to you and how it has harmed you. And then you conclude it with saying, I'm sorry. And then you end it by saying, will you forgive me? He says, that is how you apologize. And everything in those principles is how we're to do what our offenses are with God. We don't say, I'm sorry if I offended you, God. It's more like, God, I'm sorry that I, I confess I lied. I didn't trust that you would take care of me. I confess, Lord, I stole. I didn't trust you to provide for me. I confess I lusted. I wanted the worship of other people towards me uh, rather than having that worship be towards you and thinking the best and helping the best of the other person. I confess my greed that I thought things would take care of me rather than you. I confess my gossip that I would take what I knew about somebody else and use it to build myself up in somebody's eyes at their expense. You confess them. Now, some of you may go, no, wait a minute, Jack. I remember this prayer Jesus had, and he says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. He didn't go into any specifics. And I would say, you're right, but that's a model prayer. All throughout the New Testament, you see the significance and the importance of confessing what your sin is. And when you do that, it begins to set you on a path of restoration because you're acknowledging the sin. You're seeing what it does. You're confessing it to God. And you name it to say, I'm guilty. And praise be to God, we can say, we have nothing to appeal to, but your mercy and your grace found in the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the good news. I'd like to suggest one of the big problems that we have today within the Christian church is that rather than focusing on the person and the holiness of God, what we've done is we use church trying to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. So we want sermons that tell us how to be happy, how to have a successful life, how to get this, how to do that. And uh, quite often, it sets us up to be just like Israel, going about doing whatever it is we do, whatever it is other Christians do, and uh, failing to stop and to think and to evaluate, what, what does God say about this? And how am I going to get the relationship back right as far as I can in my confession and acknowledgement of it that I might be changed? And again, I'll highlight to you, one of the ways you know you're a Christian is sin bothers you. It comes to your conscience. God uses it. And if you deal with it there, he will deal with you. And he'll deal with you in mercy and grace. But if you won't deal with it there, then he'll just have to ratchet up because you are his child. And he wants to bring you into a oneness with him. And one other thing you and I have that Ezra did not have. Ezra had to appeal to God's mercy based on the sacrifices in the hopes that God would one day take care of their sin. You know what we have? The benefit of looking back to see the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, was given through Jesus Christ. And by his payment, his blood shed for our sins, we now take it by faith based on the finished work of Jesus that God has taken care of the situation. And it isn't like he's sweeping it under the rug. He nailed it to a cross. But that moves us not to just look at our sins and say, well, whatever, and move on, say, God, forgive me if I did anything. Instead, that ought to move us and drive us in love to say, my God, how great is your mercy. And it should move us to want to not sin, to not take it lightly to see what Jesus has. Because don't forget, Jesus came to deal with your guilt and your shame. Your guilt, his death. Your shame, him naked on a cross. 
and he's come to take it all away and give you in exchange the perfect righteousness of Christ. And now not only is your sin dealt with, but your identity is not based on your being that sinner. Your identity is based on standing in the pure, perfect blood of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. You are a new person to walk in that newness. And it's meant to move you to not make excuses. God will bring our sins to our attention to then impress upon us, our hearts, conviction that he might move us towards confession. And there's another part of this pathway of restoration. But to talk about that, you need to come back next week. And we'll look at that in the final chapter of Ezra. Would you bow with me as the worship team comes forward? Let me speak to just one subgroup within this room before we, uh, we close in prayer. If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, I do want to ask you something. You need to think about it. What do you do with your guilt? What do you do with it? Because you got it. You just ignore it. God's working on your heart. He won't let you ignore it. Are you just trying to bury it? If he's working on your heart, he will not allow you peace and trying to bury it. In fact, if anything, again, this is a sign. He is reaching out to you. And rather than just wallowing in the guilt and the shame, this is your opportunity to receive mercy and grace as you receive Jesus Christ as your payment for sin, as your Lord and Savior. And so today, I would appeal to you in particular this morning, take it. Receive the gift and the mercy. Some of you may be thinking in your mind, that's just too easy. And I, can I just say this? It's too easy for you. It wasn't easy for Jesus when he made that payment. But in love, God the Father wanted this accomplished. And he said, so be it. So that you might be saved. And I pray that you would receive it this morning.